Welcome to the Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business. I'm joined by my colleagues, John Easton, the E, Adam Belmar, the B, and I'm John Fury, the F. Uh, we have all filed our taxes at EFB Advocacy. Um, John Easton, they're pretty high. I would, uh, yeah, submit they're very high. Uh, Adam Belmar, pretty high. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a proud American patriot, happy to do my duty, but uh, Uncle Sam took a bite out of my ass, John. So hopefully, and out of my ass as well, I will say that we pay a lot of taxes here at EFB as a small business, struggling small business. We're not struggling, but, you know, we're a small startup, and we still pay a lot of taxes. And, you know, I'm happy to hear that this tax code is being sunsetted, and we're getting something new next year, right? I still have the sense, though, we're going to pay a lot of taxes. What do you think? Yeah, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. <laughs> we're working for the man. That's right. And the man is Uncle Sam. Right. That's right. Um, but that being said, uh, I hope this new tax code that comes in grows the economy and keeps more jobs here in America. And we'll talk about that uh, later tonight with a group of folks uh, here at EFB Advocacy. Uh, but that's not part of the theories today. We're going to start today with Theory 1. The Silver Fox. Barbara Bush, the wife of one president and the mother to another, died earlier this week. Known for her wit and her mental toughness, Barbara Bush was famous for her authentic personality and her inauthentic pearls. Um, I guess they're inauthentic. I never mm-hmm. saw them up close and she, she said it. Oh, there you go. Often. Often. Uh, Adam Belmar, you have many great Barbara Bush stories. And so we're going to turn the uh, platform over to you to give us some insight into what the Bushes were really like since you have some great stories about them. Well, you know, I do. They're they're quite personal. Um, I grew up in Washington, D.C., a native Washingtonian, and um, I I was fortunate enough to live in a house that the Bushes uh, once owned. In fact, they owned this home in northwest D.C., when George H.W. Bush served as director of central intelligence. And so the cachet of moving into this neighborhood and moving into this home was great when I was very young, about eight or nine. But about nine years later, uh, in the days just leading up to the inauguration of George H.W. Bush, January 20th, 1989, the Bushes came back to the neighborhood because they have so many great friends. Everywhere they traveled, they had great close friendships. And there were some prominent folks living right there where we were, uh, former federal judge Robert Bork, a local doctor, and his wife who were close to the president, Potter Stewart, a Supreme Court justice, folks like that. They came back for a wonderful lunch right before the inauguration. And during that, uh, I got to meet them for the first time, take pictures as a young man. And Mrs. Bush was exceedingly kind. She talked to my mother about um, you know, the changes that have been made in the house. She, she talked to us all uh, about the dog. She was chasing after my dog to say hello. And um, I went on to very much respect the Bush family, having met them personally and heard great stories. I grew up in a bedroom that uh, my future boss, uh, 43, George W. Bush, lived in in that house. And as I got older, I met them again. Uh, as a senior producer for ABC's This Week with George Stephanopoulos in 2006, I went down to do a story with Mrs. Bush and uh, 41 about their generous contributions to the Salvation Army down in Houston. 
and they gave me a number of hours, and it was so great to reminisce about our first meeting then, and I did not know that I would go on to work for President George W. Bush and get to see both of them at Camp David and at the White House, and then on the last day of George W. Bush's presidency, I had a chance with the whole family there to run an interview with father and son, two presidents sitting together on the last day of their presidency. They are great people, but she, as so many people who knew her better have said, such an authentic woman who led by example, who gave great prominence to the role of first lady, and she's going to be dearly missed. Jenny, did you ever get a chance? To, I never met Barbara Bush. Did you ever get a chance to meet her? Um, any any stories about the Bush family? No, I just really more observations than anything else. And it's been great this week talking to Adam about uh, a lot of his experiences uh, with, uh, particularly you know, in George W. Bush's White House, being you know able to be around you know a, a presence like that. But I think mine is you know much more removed. Growing up, uh, really the the first ladies that I, that I really remember were Nancy Reagan, and then mm-hmm. of course after that. Uh, was was Barbara Bush and and I just what I've reflected on this week, particularly with her in particular, is the important role that the first lady plays in America. I, I really think that it still holds true. I know we're in a much different era in politics, and you know how we talk about politics, how we view the White House, how divisive, divisive everything is has gotten. But I, I really think that if you look back at Nancy Reagan and 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 Barbara Bush. Uh, and 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 Hillary Clinton, each one of them really played a, a very uh, unique role, and they really reflected their husband uh, very much. And if you look at Hillary Clinton, it was well, this was sort of this new age of 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 a you know a working mom, and and she reflected that she was a real go getter, and she reflected that couple. And I think that then you have George. W. Bush, and it was sort of kind of coming back a little bit more, you know, toward where Reagan and and George H. W. Bush was, and but you know, uh, uh, Mrs. Bush, uh, George W. Bush is is what filled a great role, and I actually think Melania Trump reflects Donald Trump, and you know, she is not the first lady that these others were, but she is trying to you know uh, play a role. Can you imagine Donald Trump with a um, with a Barbara Bush uh, as as first lady, it just wouldn't work. But Melania kind of works with Donald Trump. But Barbara Bush worked so well for George H. W. Bush and for the country. And I really, really appreciate all her contributions. Yeah, Barbara Bush. Um, it's interesting to see where she was in the the Republican Party changed. And I think if Barbara Bush could do it all over again today, she'd be a Democrat. I mean, one of the things that was an early point of contention with Barbara Bush is she was. She's Planned Parenthood, pro-Planned Parenthood, for very much pro-choice. And George W. George H. W. Bush had to make that transition because that's where the party was, although secretly he was probably as pro-choice as she was. Uh, he had to be a pro-life president. And uh, you think about Melania Trump, and, and, and she's probably not traditionally a Republican. The Republic, Republican Party is not where the Bushes are anymore. Now, there are some Bushes that are still there. George P. Bush, for example. I mean, I think that he gets the, the politics of it. But, you know, Jeb and, and um, George W. refused to endorse President Trump. The party's going by. And so, you know, I think that this is an interesting inflection point to think of Barbara Bush's contribution to the, to the republic and to the Republican Party. And, you know, I think that things, times change. And I think yeah. that's one of the most interesting things about where she was. And as being the pro-choice 
person within that White House, she was able to communicate secretly to all these other pro-choice Republicans that, you know, all is not lost. But the party is much more populous and much more pro-life than it once was. Yeah, and to that point, John, I'd love to hear from Adam because of all of his experiences in the in the George W. Bush White House. You know, she really was such a force and so authentic. You can see her authenticity, really, say what you will about Jeb and about, about George W., but they were authentic people. They are authentic people, and I think you can attribute a lot of that to their mother. Talk about the White House and how how Barbara Bush sort of – what impact does she have on the White House for, for you all? Well, I, I would just start by saying that I don't think I agree with uh, John Fury's supposition that although she was uh, uh, pro-choice, that she would have been a Democrat if she had to do it again. I think. No, I mean, I'm talking about today's, today's party. Well, maybe. I think her husband really believed very strongly in conservative values and the Republican Party. Um, and I know that, that she did too, and I think it's possible to be a good Republican who still believes in a woman's right to choose. I know that I feel that way. Um, but in answer to John Easton's uh, question, it, whenever I was with the president, whether it was down at the ranch or off-site um, somewhere, he would always talk to, about his mom in the way that, uh, that he did even when the cameras were nearby. He'd say, all right, hurry up, producer. Mother's coming. <laughs> um, and, you know, we've we got to wrap this up. And, uh, you know, he would uh, sometimes tell me that there was feedback. You know, mother liked the video of the dog, the Barney video. And that would make me know that uh, we'd done something good if, oh, if Mrs. Neat. Bush, Barbara Bush, uh, was, was there. You know, it, it's amazing. Uh, people have noted uh, mother to a president, wife to another. Um, but she played such a strong role in, in, in guiding that whole family and keeping it together. Uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, military veteran who served during World War II, uh, this family had traveled throughout their political life and career. She was just a stalwart. She was the kind of glue, they say, that kept that family together. Yeah. But she set a great example for, for, I think, so many American families, and that's why she's so beloved, John Fury. Great. Um, theory two, keeping your distance. Uh, John Easton, you were watching CNN this morning, and they ran a story about Republicans and how right now they refuse to endorse President Trump's reelection. I think it's kind of a ridiculous story. Some, but, some, some do. Um, tell us about the story and, and why should we – I think it's an interesting topic to talk about. Yeah, well, it is – it really surprised me, uh, this, this story, because, one, I think people like us are, are really focused on the – 2018 elections, we're talking about it all the time. Who's up? Who's down? Who's raising money? Who's pulling well? It's it's all about, and you know, are we going to keep the House? Uh, uh, how's the Senate looking? And and all of a sudden, this story comes out of nowhere that a couple of, of senators and congressmen, Republicans, were asked, uh, will they support President Trump in the 2020 presidential election and some of them didn't right away say well of course yeah yes i'm endorsing him and 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 cnn's been running this now uh, through a lot of the morning you see some of the on twitter it's starting to get out there a little bit i i was surprised but i shouldn't be too surprised because this is the kind of stuff and i and i'm just really down on a lot of the, the mainstream media right now because of the kinds of stories that they're glomming onto like this uh, and I know John has, I think, you know, something to say about the other side of the aisle uh, on this very topic. But come on, guys. I mean, really, it, 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 it's just there's too much going on right now. There's too much focus and, and, uh, and, and 
even turbulence of the, in the 2018 election to even think about 2020. But here it is, and we got a story. You know, this is my theory on this story. Um, there have been several news stories about how many Democrats refuse to endorse Nancy Pelosi and CNN because it's become a wholly owned outfit of the Democratic Party. And I, I can't watch it anymore. I can't watch it anymore. I don't know what's going on over there. They put this story out there so it, it distracts from the real story about Nancy Pelosi's real problems. And this is, this is the thing is that who knows what's going to happen with Donald Trump? I mean – most of these members are really not even thinking about Trump. What they're thinking about is how am I going to get my ass reelected? Or if I'm not running, how do I get a job after I, uh, this election is over? They want to take care of their family. What they don't care about is Donald Trump. I mean, they, they got Trump is a huge distraction for a lot of things they're doing. And, yes, they hope that he signs whatever piece of legislation they come up with. But they, they don't even – I mean, they would love to have someone else run against him and win, but that's not, probably not going to happen. Um, the big story that the media should be focused on is the fact that Nancy Pelosi has some real fundamental problems and that anyone who is going to make her majority, if they have a majority, and which I'm not sure if they will, has got to say publicly that they will not support Nancy Pelosi as Speaker. You know, Paul Ryan didn't have that problem. Um, Kevin McCarthy doesn't have that problem. Republicans are just simply not toxic in these Democratic districts, except for Donald Trump, of course. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is toxic, Adam Belmar, in these very, very uh, red, red districts that um, Democrats need to have if they want to win the majority. Well, you know, I, I see your point, and I, I think that she may well be toxic for a lot of other reasons. A great deal of rejuvenation and search for new life politically is, is, is going on right now in Washington. But this idea that uh, anyone would uh, declare that they're going to vote or support President Trump for his uh, second run for the office isn't surprising. A lot of these same people, quite frankly, um, John Easton, weren't really excited or acknowledging support for the president right up until he won the presidency. That's right. Um, and I think a lot of people, uh, with everything that's going on right now, the, 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 the circus that's going on in Washington, of which there has been so much this week, and then the second ring that got put up down in Mar-a-Lago with the uh, summit with uh, Shinzo Abe, um, who knows what's going to happen is what John Fury just said. And I think you're right. The president says, well, we'll see what happens. Well, I think that's about as much commitment as you're going to get from a lot of people on this. Yeah, and to add to that, one of the things that I was having a, a really interesting conversation with a Republican Senate chief of staff recently who made a great observation about the culture in the Senate now on the Republican side has really changed in, in the Donald Trump era in that they're, they're, the senators leave their offices and they, they go down to vote or they'll go to a committee hearing. And, you know, it's, it's just a free coming and going. And there are reporters in the hallway and they are, of course, there to get a scoop, get a story, get a comment. And in the age of Donald Trump, every single day there is something – really interesting to uh, report and to comment on, and they want the reaction from these senators. And every day when these senators, go to, Republican senators, go to work, they have no idea what's coming their way. And in a way, it, it, it forces them to be on their toes, very well read in on what's going on and what the president is saying. Right, the danger of not being brief. Oh. That's really and sometimes they're learning, the they're learning news as right. the, the reporters are asking the question. But you had to deal with that a lot, too. I had to deal with it. Um, and, you know, it was great because I didn't have the cameras shoved into my face. Um, you know, the Speaker of the House did. But, you know, Denny Hastert, 
when he would get a question from a reporter, he would put his shoulders up and just bowl through and wouldn't even um, acknowledge their, their questions, wouldn't even acknowledge their existence. He had this visceral dislike of the media asking him questions where he didn't know the answer. He got away with that, I think, because of who he was in the time. Do you think that that doesn't work anymore, right? Well, I think he got away with I think you could get away with it if you're as publicity shy and didn't care about the press as much as Denny Hassert didn't care about the press. So many of these folks, like if you're Lindsey Graham or Susan Collins or Bob Corker or anybody in the house is looking for a little bit of attention, yeah. you know, you don't really, you just want to get media attention. So you're willing to say anything to anybody. And, you know, you're, a lot of times you're shooting from the hip. I mean, uh, John Easton, I think about this uh, in the, you know, how do you react when you hear, hey, Mike Pompeo is going to North Korea to conclude the first, to actually get a peace treaty for the first time in 50 years with North Korea. I mean, how do you react to that? Well, I think part of it is just being really disciplined and, and deciding what ahead of time, really, what you want to talk about and not get sidetracked into stuff that really probably has no relevance is gonna, and is going to be gone as quickly as it comes. A lot of these tweets that Donald Trump, you know, the thing with Denny Haster, Speaker Haster back in the day, there was there wasn't Twitter, there wasn't this this spasmodic, you know, uh, almost just barfing of of stuff every single morning that that reporters are dying to ask senators and congressmen what they think about what the president just said. These guys are pretty tired of that, so you got to decide what you want to comment on and decide what you. I, I think the Elizabeth Warren tactic of never saying anything in the hallway to, to reporters. I think that's way, way overboard. But I think there's a middle ground. I think I think I think putting your shoulders back and going through once in a while and not saying anything is a good tactic. But I don't think it works every time. I don't think you can get really away with that too much this day. Hey Adam, what do you think of this opening salvo from Trump to uh, sending Pompeo to talk to the the rocket man? You know what? This is uh, truly remarkable. We're in uncharted territories, and uh, I applaud the the director of CIA to take the president's challenge to be able to go over there, meet face-to-face with a dictator who is armed with nuclear weapons and openly threatening the United States and our allies. Great first step. Um, now, there's a lot of politics going on around this with his confirmation. There are other issues about... Uh, is this a credible meeting for progress and or peace? Where will it take place? These are questions we've had around this table, Fury. And you know what? The only way to get answers to them, quite frankly, is to send somebody you trust and who can be seen as truly, honestly speaking on behalf of the president, this president. Good on you, Mr. President, for doing this. I hope it works well for us. And, John Easton, you know, with your knowledge of international affairs and armed services stuff with Kelly Ayotte and Gordon Smith yeah. – um, you know, the senators now have to weigh whether they're going to confirm Pompeo. And he's kind of showing his chops as a diplomat, at least that's what Trump says. Democrats are going nuts. Yeah. Well, how do you think senators I, I, I think this is uh, a, a great example of the Senate, and particularly the, the minority party at this point, getting really off the rails. <laughs> I, I do. I, I think we've – and this is really serious. We've talked about this before, about how bottling up all these nominations really denies the president to fill his government, and that's a problem. I understand why. I completely understand the politics. I'm not saying Republicans haven't done it in the past. But I think what is was starting to change is, is that the, the deference that a, a president usually gets on some of these really top posts – 
in the past where, you know, like with big confirmations, with big nominations to a cabinet, unless the nominee is faced with some serious problems, you know, whether it's per, on the personal side or on the professional side, on the ethical side, if, if they've got a stellar background and they have, uh, they have acquitted them, themselves well in Congress and, and, and in this case at the CIA, they get the vote. And, and a lot of times by a very, very big margin. And now we're seeing that he may not even make it out of committee. Mike Pompeo, he's a CIA director and he's a third-term congressman. West Point and Harvard Law School grad. This guy has uh, a stellar background, and nope, we're gonna we're gonna deny him. I, I think the president should get this one. Yeah, well, he's got to get it, and but he's doing the job anyway, right, Adam? Well, he is. So let's make no mistake. Uh, in point of fact, he did go to North Korea in the role of director of Central Intelligence. This was as much an intelligence mm-hmm. mission as it was a diplomatic one. But I take your point. But I really was concerned this morning. I'm listening to NPR, and I hear. Uh, Senator Ben Cardin from Maryland, who I think I agree with on some very important issues, was not happy to hear his reservations about Pompeo because they showed, as I think you said, a lack of deference to the president. Advice and counsel from the Senate isn't point out where we disagree and, hey, I don't like his stance on this or that. He's qualified to be Secretary of State. We need a Secretary of State. He passed the Senate's muster once. There's no reason not to put him in the job now, Democrats are missing the mark on the politics of how long they can go and hold this up. Well, and it's not just uh, Democrats. Republicans are also having some little protest. Uh, there was a story today about how yesterday the Senate couldn't agree or get into the Senate majority leader couldn't get enough votes on a Coast Guard bill because uh, Jeff Flake demanded that he get a meeting with Mike Pompeo. Uh, and would not vote for the bill unless he got that meeting. And then, you know, this is the kind of stuff that happens when you have a very tight majority. And uh, but the Senate's got to be—they got to be careful because they over overplay their hand. They look like fools. They do. I I think that Coast Guard, the the uh, Senator Flake, that's been going on in the Senate for as long as the Senate's been around. Right. But I think on on the larger issue, I think if if you want to make philosophical points and you want to reject the president at every term but not let the president fill his, his cabinet with qualified people, I think you should go somewhere else. I think there's – go run for something else. The Senate needs to be a place where you have reasoned and reasonable people who can split the difference between real politics and policy and then you know, letting a, an administration fill. Theory 3 discharge petition. Uh, Jeff Denham, who was on this broadcast uh, a couple months ago, great member of Congress from California – uh, is leading the charge with about 40 of his Republican colleagues to join all the Democrats and sign a discharge petition, which is a um, parliamentary procedure that discharges a rule directly to the House floor to allow for debate of a certain subject. This happened when my boss was the Speaker of the House. They did a discharge petition on campaign finance reform. What Jeff Denham wants to do a discharge petition on is discharging a rule to allow debate on the House floor on immigration reform. Um, it would allow the Denham discharge petition would allow four different pieces of legislation to be de- debated and voted on dealing with comprehensive immigration reform. Um, 
I personally think that this is a very smart strategy by Jeff Denham because he's got a pretty big Hispanic district. And for the 40 of his colleagues who they want some progress on an issue of immigration. Um, it's also great politics for the Republican leadership because they don't have their hands dirty. One of the problems that the Republican leadership has had about bringing uh, immigration reform forward, John uh, Easton, is the fact that they are they don't want to alienate the, the, the conservative base. Right. Um, and But if uh, Paul Ryan or Kevin McCarthy or Steve Scalise can't control the process and Denim is able to move forward on this process, it's good for Denim. It's good for the 40 vulnerables, and it's good for the Republican leadership. And hopefully we can finally get immigration reform up and debated on the House floor. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, and it's good for the issue. It's good for the House of Representatives to be able to breathe a little bit on, on, on immigration. And one of the things we talked about with Congressman Denham was this, this frustration that the Senate uh, has a couple times passed comprehensive immigration uh, reform bills only to see zero happen in in the House, and I know a lot of members like like Congressman Denham desperately want to consider something and something real and something uh, forward moving. So kudos to to, to the congressman. I because I, I do think uh, my personal opinion on this issue is I think there needs to we got to let a little bit of air out of this balloon. I think that uh, the immigration needs some action and needs to see some action, and the more that there is happening in terms of votes in the House the better for the issue. Now, uh, Adam Belmar, one of the big issues uh, on immigration is DACA. Uh, the president gave up on getting a DACA deal, and I think he gave up on it because I think the Democrats you know, weren't going to give him a deal. This procedure brings this subject back. Do you think there's enough time in the calendar to get something through the House and then perhaps – through the Senate floor? You know, your opinion on this I value more than my own. I, I really don't know about the, the time of the I'm, – I am skeptical. You know, we are in an election year, not a lot of days. We've, we've all sort of seen this uh, before. Um, so I, I, I don't know about that, but I, I, do, I do think that for a president who is a dealmaker and the continued churn that comes from this being pushed forward and DACA coming back up now from the Republicans – We've seen it. Mark Meadows and and his his group have become power brokers at times, bar none, with this president. Another group can open up an opportunity. So, if there was a chance, this is a way to get to it. I don't know, quite frankly, if there's enough time in this calendar. What do you think about that? Oh, I I think there's enough time. I'm not sure if there's the will, and no. I think I don't think there's enough time to get it through the Senate floor, Johnny. So no, you know yeah. more about that. Um, I mean, they have, and we talked about this. The House is out of session today they were supposed to be in session today mm -hmm. they don't have a whole lot going on because um, they got most of their major stuff done in the big omni you know who's not out of session the senate right and why is that <laughs> nominations <laughs> that's why because the democrats right now are, are for forcing the entire clock to be used up on these nominations whether they're lower level nominations or higher level nominations and you know senator mcconnell leader mcconnell needs to just He's forced to deal with that, and so I think what you may see with the Senate calendar in the Senate these weeks is that they're just going to get longer and longer and longer so that we can fill some of these positions. So to, the, to an immigration bill, I, I think it would have to really have some, some real success over the House to force the issue in the Senate. I'm with you. I, I don't see that happening. But you know what? This is why it's good for Congressman Denham to try because – 
it, the Senate hasn't seen action come out of the House. So if it sees some action coming out of the House, it might reignite something. But this is an election year. Immigration in election year is usually a non-starter. So if they have this discharge petition, if they have the votes on immigration on the House floor, and if it passes the House and goes over to the Senate, if somehow the Supreme Court or the federal judiciary decides that whatever stay they have on the DACA decision is no longer a stay and the president has the ability to end the program, this gives Republicans a nice little pathway to getting something done on, on the bigger issue. So it could, it could definitely happen. It could definitely ha- it could happen. I think that, that given the time frame on the judiciary piece of this, I don't think it's going to happen before the election. What about a lame duck? Why, what about a lame duck? Well, you know, the lame duck seems to make a whole lot of sense because I think besides the policy, the things that so many folks are worried about perhaps at the leadership level is forcing their members to take a really tough vote. Yeah, and then, you know, actually that's a really good point. Um, you were in a meeting, um, which is private, we won't talk about the contents of the meeting, who was in there, but members in the Senate do want to take tough votes. Yeah. Uh, they don't want to just sit around and do nothing. And I think that's right, and I think that members, especially if they are in districts that are marginal, they want to show their independence from President Trump and from um, the Republican leadership. Yeah, I, I think you, I think that's right. I think that uh, in terms of at least in the Senate, I can I can speak to because I've I've been with a couple of members who all of them travel and spend a you know, close to a week in this town nearly every week, and they do not want to do so without getting some real stuff done. I, honestly, that is the vast majority of them. Uh, known they don't all want to take tough votes, but they want to take. Votes. They, they will take tough votes if 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 it's for a good purpose. And part of what has happened with this with the Senate with immigration is they have taken the tough votes, and then nothing has happened in, in the House. And, and I do think that members don't mind taking a tough vote. I can't say all of them. I think a lot of them mind, but the majority don't mind taking a tough vote if they know it's going to go somewhere in the process and perhaps be signed into law. Yeah. So I think that's, again, uh, back on the House and Congressman Denham's effort. You know, this has been a great discussion. Uh, I do want to start the process, and since I'm the moderator, I can start with you, Adam. What are you buying or selling today? Um, you know what? Every once in a while on this podcast, I like to bring people back to what's basically amazing about Capitol Hill. I am buying Bullfrog Bagels located <laughs> here at Eastern Market. Yeah. The city paper just named them Best Bagel in D.C. That's not an accident. Um, whether it's uh, early morning or midday, as long as you get there before the bagels are gone, it's the best thing going. Bye, bye, bye. One nice thing I would say about Bullfrog Bagels is that my son, Jack Fury, who turned 12, his breakfast birthday celebration encompassed Bullfrog Bagels. He got a Bullfrog Bagel, everything bagel, with cream cheese for his breakfast birthday celebration. So- I love that kid. Happy birthday, Jack Fury. Happy birthday. I, I, I am a big proponent of bullfrog bagels as well. I am a active consumer. You uh, and I had lunch there just the other day. Indeed. I love the, the, the smoked salmon uh, in particular. So I'm going to buy and I'm going to sell. So I'll start with my sell uh, because I don't sell that often. I'm going to sell James Comey's book tour. Nice. Good call. Because I, I just, I'm not – I think we all get tired of these of these uh, politicians' book tours in, in general. I, I think that they get a little too much attention to begin with. 
This is the former FBI director. I mean, we're not going to get into to you know Trump and Comey and Rosenstein and all that. We just don't need to. It that's that's been covered way too much already. But this he's he's on. Uh, who was that? Was he on Kimmel the other night? He was on Colbert. Was he? He was on Colbert. He's on now. He's on late night. He's on late night. He's on The View. He's this is like you know an author just going out and just pelling his wares. And uh, I just think he is now crossed. I, I just didn't know folks from the Justice Department, particularly the FBI, did book tours, particularly one that um, goes after a, a current president. Um, I, again, I'm selling and I'm selling, brave new world. I'm, I'm selling big. I am buying uh, Tammy Jo Schultz. She is the pilot who handled this blown engine on Southwest Airlines the other day that everybody has heard about. And I just I am buying I am buying former Navy fighter pilots. She is, such and I'm a buying former human. female uh, Navy fighter pilots. F-18 Hornet, uh, former pilot, and from everything everybody has said is that she handled this this situation with uh, nerves of steel. And the other thing I, I want to buy in this in this uh, situation is just everyday passengers on airplanes. I mean, it, it gives me comfort, whether it was the one that went down uh, on the Hudson River, whether it was the, the 9-11, the fated 9-11, Flight 93 that went down, or this one. I mean, you had – they were interviewing somebody earlier today. It was the firefighter EMT who really helped this this passenger that, that ended up uh, tragically dying. But just kind of just the everyday heroism of, of people, it just it's good to know as an American that we really are surrounded by just everyday angels. God bless. Well said. Well said. Uh, I am going to buy, uh, and this is a little bit late to the the equation, but I'm going to rebuy Facebook. Um, in, where, did, where did you hear that? Uh, this podcast last week. Um, you know, the fact is that they did not lay a hand or a glove on Mark Zuckerberg. He made them look all a little bit silly, and I, I say that because I've been spending a lot of time on Facebook, and I still spend a lot of time on Facebook. Yeah. I get a lot of my information on Facebook. Uh, we do a lot of this podcast is broadcast on Facebook. Um, you know, I think that once they went through the, the hearing process and e- examined um, the whole idea of privacy in the context of social media, which is, as we found out, is an oxymoron. Uh, there is no privacy on social media. And the fact that um, I don't think that the, the Congress can regulate Facebook because I don't think they know how to regulate Facebook. Um, I think that Facebook – and I think ultimately – Congress is going to turn its attention to other social media, um, big, huge groups like Amazon and, and Google. Um, I think Facebook is fine, and I think this is a good time to buy because I think they took a little bit of a hit, but now is a good time to buy. And I know that uh, someone else bought on, the, on this program last week, and I, I'm going to double down on the buy. With that, um, thank you for joining the Fury Theory Podcast brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means? Excellent for business. Yeah, baby.